This is Radar by Nextworks. I'm your host, Stephen van Bellegem, and every month, my friends at Nextworks and I bring you the latest developments in technology, business, and everything related to innovation. Hey, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of Radar, our Nextworks podcast. This is the first one of season two. We took the summer off to recharge, and now we're very excited to be back with a new episode. And this time, just as last time before summer, I have three other guests here in the podcast. I have Peter Hinzen, I have Pascal Koppens, and I have Julie Vens de Vos. And with the four of us, we're going to talk you through some of the topics and some of the news items that really excited us during summer. And uh, of course, this is also the beginning of, especially in, in most European and Western markets, the beginning of a post-COVID going back to work, going back to the office. And Julie, you have been monitoring this. How great is the madness of going back to the office? What did you see in terms of news that excited you? Well, Stephen, the office day games have not disappointed. I must say we uh, we discussed the topic uh, earlier in Radar as well. And I mean, the madness just continued. Uh, the battle of one day, two days, three days, approval, no approval. I mean, it was a great show. Um, so I'm, I think, very happy to be back in the podcast. I'm not sure whether everybody feels the same way of going back to the office. So, But it's still surprising to me that the discussion is, is really going into that direction. I think one aspect that was added to the mix is, and maybe more on a global scale, do you have to be vaccinated at work? I think the, the big, big companies, also tech companies who really demand to be vaccinated uh, to be at the office, I think that's an element that has been added to the mix. Um, so not only being at the office, but also being allowed at the office is, I think, intriguing to observe that actually people won't have a choice anymore. So I think that's a second dynamic to watch, uh, which I'm curious about, like, how will that evolve in, in Europe? But above all, again, I'm not keen on having the discussion on what's the right number of days or, yeah, rules to be in the office. I think it's appalling that the discussion is, is not really about, okay, what's maybe a good idea for your company and your employees. <laughs> so it's more like, hey, we have a new building, so people have to be back in the office five days because we paid for the building, so that's the best idea. And then you have other companies who are saying, okay, yeah, actually our building is too small. So we, we shifted to not have a new building. So it's okay. You can work from home. So, but I think that doesn't really resonate to what's really impactful for your company or strategy or the employees working there. So I would love to see some more employee centricity in this discussion. Like I heard rumors of other tech companies that are focusing on, okay, who is living, for example, in very small places, who needs to be back in the office first, and then making sure that those people can be back first. So instead of going for the day madness, I hope to see more perk-like minded evolutions that actually benefit employees and actually make sure that they want to be back. Um, An interesting one is the vaccination one. Eh? Is it something that you can force upon people? Have you been thinking about the whole vaccination discussion? Can you do that in an employee-centric way? Flexibility ends, of course, where the customer begins uh, and where your other colleagues begin. So it's a very difficult discussion, I think, like where does freedom end if you kind of shift into other people's rights to well-being? I mean, there's lots of things to do on well-being and mental benefits and apps, etc. But I mean, just making sure that you're confident that the colleagues around you cannot make you ill. 
I can't imagine that people are worried about something like that. So I think it's a discussion that companies have to have, yeah, as a community together on how they approach that. Well, I, I do see quite uh, a number of companies actually now probably moving into mandatory vaccinations. I mean, uh, for example, some of the airlines in the U.S. have clearly voiced that. I think it's going to be a global issue because I think the whole idea that we're beginning to see is that the vaccinations have a limited shelf life. So I think this is going to be a, a really hot debate going forward. But I wouldn't rule out that a large number of companies that have employees that deal with customers a lot are probably just going to have to make vaccinations mandatory. Mm-hmm. But I think the, the whole you know, post-pandemic world and what it means for HR, I think, is an absolutely wonderful place to observe. And I think we have to go beyond just the, the practicalities of the vaccinations, but how are we going to deal with our people you know, after 18 months, maybe two years in total, where they have lived a completely different life as an employee? And I see you know, the discussion going in all directions. I, I had a call yesterday with you know, one of the largest companies in the world where the CEO clearly says, I want my people back. And it's not because of the building or because of the real estate, because he fundamentally believes that if he wants to get the creativity going and if he wants to use the proximity, he can actually really unleash more than what they have been doing at home. But at the same time, I see many, many people who have enjoyed a completely different life over the last 18 months and who don't want to go back to the office every single day and face the issues of traffic and congestion and the complexity and the hassle and who liked life at home and and who liked spending more time with the family. I think it's going to be, in my opinion, the great HR clash of the next couple of years. And in honesty, I think it's going to make a huge difference in terms of recruiting, because I think the policy that you're going to craft for your employees is now going to be more important than ever before. Because honestly, in the past, if you worked for one software company or another software company, it was always approximately the same in terms of HR and perks. If you worked for one accountancy firm or another accountancy firm or one automotive company, or it was almost the same. I mean, you could have slight differences in salary, but I think the policy of how you're going to deal with your employees is going to be a huge differentiating factor in the marketplace. So I'm pretty excited to actually see that pan out. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with many of these aspects. But what I see happening, and this is coming from Asia, is the collective versus individual freedoms. And there you see in Asia, not just China, the whole Asia, is that it's a much more collective society, mm-hmm. which means that people feel that they don't want to go for their own freedom if it hurts or harms anybody else's freedom. They're much more collective. And so companies don't feel that they have to force this onto employees and Even in the government and everywhere, people are just doing it because they feel this is what we need to do to protect the nation, protect our citizens in the world. And so I think this is going to be another debate that is going to come. And this has been something, of course, because of the pandemic that has been on the table. But China for a long time and many other countries in Asia were saying like, yeah, but I mean, why is it so difficult in Europe and in America for people to do tests, to go to lockdown, to get vaccinated? And and so for them, it's like strange to understand that people don't want to do this voluntarily. And so I think this is going to be another debate on talent, 
where maybe people from a collective society are going to be more easy to engage than people from an individual society because they're more flexible to work in a certain environment. And with the new world, which is digital anyway, it doesn't matter whether you hire someone in, in the Philippines or hire someone in Europe. So I think there's going to be another shift there. And HR is going to use that as well, on, definitely on a global level. Yeah, and the personalization, I think, is going to be more crucial than ever. I mean, me and Peter were different. Me and Julie were different. And if you then add all the cultures, all the personal situations, I mean, personalization in HR is going to be a crucial one. And to bridge it to our next topic, imagine that we all go back to the office. Then, of course, we're going to need help in our households. And what is better to help us than a Tesla robot? I don't know if you guys have seen it um, during their last conference. Elon Musk proudly announced that they will create a Tesla humanoid robot. And um, when I saw it, I thought, okay, this is extremely, extremely cool. But on the other hand, it's also very, very strange that suddenly Tesla wants to make robots that help us to you know, empty the dishwasher and things like that. But if you look at the evolution of Tesla, it's interesting to see. In, in the beginning, we called them a car company. They make or they try to make cars, then they succeeded in that. Then we called them an energy company. Uh, maybe Tesla is a software company, because if you look at their autopilot, it is probably one of the most advanced self-driving systems in the world today that many, many people use and where so much data is being generated that they can improve their system over and over again, which makes it very hard for others to catch up with them. So they're a software company. But now Elon Musk said what we really want to be is a robotics company. And we're not making cars, we're making robots on wheels. And if we use that technology that we have to create this autopilot, we can use that in a robot that could become a household help to make sure that everything that is boring to humans, that is dangerous to humans or repetitive, can be done through a robot. And we, as Tesla, the leading robotics company in the world, is what he said, we want to create this in the next couple of years. And then, of course, when you see the videos with the humanoid robot, with the fingers and how it works, I mean, it looks awesome. But at the same time, I'm wondering if this is really the next move that they should go for. Probably the most exciting robots that we all know are the ones from Boston Dynamics that can do all these crazy things. How far are they behind that? I mean, it's really interesting to see. But the day that they launch it, I'm going to be their first client. It's always been my dream to have a dishwashing, emptying robot in my house. I was thoroughly underwhelmed, Stephen, by (laughs) the presentation. I don't know why you got so excited, but all I saw was a guy in a spandex suit pretending to be a robot. (laughs) Honestly, I thought it was a big, big joke. And Tesla has been notorious for introducing things way, way before they actually are real. I mean, even the self-driving capabilities that Tesla has been talking about for years were relatively underwhelming in terms of the hype created and the reality that you got. And with this robot, I think he fell to an absolute new low, in my opinion. (laughs) I mean, he basically said, yeah, we're going to build a robot. And next year, we're not going to have a guy in a spandex suit, but we actually will have a real robot. I mean, that is about as much horseshit as (laughs) I can find in a PR stunt. And I think it's classic Elon Musk. I mean, it's over-promising, under-delivering. And it's interesting that he wants to go there. It's clearly interesting he wants to focus even more on AI. 
but actually a guy in a spandex suit was <laughs> a really big disappointment for me. I agree about the suit, but if you look at how they're moving in terms of AI, I think that in the beginning, it was it's true. They overpromised with their self-driving capabilities. Today, I think if you look to the automotive market and what is in the market, they probably have most people using it. They have most data that's being generated. They're going to create their own chips to make sure that they can leverage their knowledge even more. So I think in the next couple of years, we're going to see probably a big breakthrough and an acceleration of their self-driving capabilities. So I think that at that point, they're going to be leading. But it's interesting, the point that he sees himself as now the owner of a robotics company rather than a car company. To put it in perspective, I think for a long time, over the last 10 years, we said that almost every company was becoming a technology company. Mm -hmm. I think what we're now seeing is that almost every company is becoming a data company. And I think beyond that, every company is becoming an AI company. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the logical evolution. I mean, a car company is not about the mechanics anymore. It's going to be about the data and how we deal with the data. So AI is the logical evolution. And it's no surprise that he's spending so much money on developing its own chips. I mean, look at what is happening now. There is a crippling shortage in computer chips in the automotive industry. Toyota has just announced that it's going to cut 40% of its car output. And the reason is they can't have access to the technology. I mean, the chips aren't there to actually power the next generation of cars. So I think that evolution where every company becomes a tech company, we've done that. Every company becomes a data company. This is where we are. Every company will become an AI company. And Tesla is no example. Um, I just wish they were a little bit more, you know, uh, visionary than spandex. That That is my only <laughs> conclusion. Yeah. I can live with that, Peter. I can live with that. Pascal, in China, how far are they actually with the humanoid robots? Uh, I assume they've gone beyond the suits right now. Well, I think from a hardware perspective, there's no country that can actually beat China in any way. Uh, China is way ahead when it comes to hardware. They have so many robots at the lowest price. Even if you look at Boston Dynamics, just the hardware, and that actually works, is, is at like $1,000 to $2,000. While uh, Boston Dynamics, if you want to buy one, it's a lot more expensive. So the problem is really the software. And uh, they've been trying to spend a lot of time on doing that. Now, China has this aim to become the global leader in AI. So I think it's a global race to get there. And the hardware they have, they just need the software and then they integrate that. And more importantly than having the smartest robot is the most affordable robot at the best uh, quality or the, the best functionality. And I think that's where it will go global much faster because people will be able to buy the robots. Now with Boston Dynamics, nobody's buying that. I mean, just a few people are buying that. And, and Tesla will have the same issue. That's the whole thing that always start from the top over promise and then under deliver and then find people who are very rich that want to buy that. But ultimately, you're changing society once people who haven't gotten that money are buying into cheaper devices, cheaper robots that can do almost the same thing. They just, uh, when they empty the dishwasher, maybe there's a glass that will not uh, survive. But honestly, Pascal, I hear what you're saying, but if I'm going to buy a car that drives itself, I would rather pay a little bit more for something that is top quality than pay a little bit less for something that might crash into a bus. And the same thing, if I'm going to ever buy a humanoid robot, I'm not going to go for the cheapest model. I mean, if they're going to have, I mean, I don't care about my dishes, but if they're going to babysit my kids, then I'm probably not going to go for the cheapest model. 
also depends what they will be wearing. But um, <laughs> one, uh, one perspective to, to add to that question, I think it's fascinating to see that we're actually debating also the world we're going to live in. I mean, you, you see the whole discussion about virtual reality and the metaverse. And actually, we're doing all sorts of things to make the virtual world more human and be able to do more real things in a virtual world. And on the other hand, you have this robot example, which is just adding more virtual to our real world. So mm -hmm. is it like going to be a combination of the two? Or I mean, are the robots going to win? Or will it depend on their spandex uh, motive? I don't know. But uh, I think it's fascinating to see that these two dynamics are yeah on the same vert because in, in virtual reality we do have the same feeling it's always awkward it's always like well, what is what is happening here and this is not real and isn't it the same with the robots it's of course under delivering but it does signal a sort of trend of which world are we going to live in yeah well i think if you look ahead the difference between virtual and real is getting smaller and smaller and after a while when you're in a virtual world it will be hard to see the difference with the real world. If you look to the gaming world, it's getting more and more realistic. I can imagine 20 years from now that for then kids playing game, there will hardly be any difference between what is real and what is virtual. And the same within the real world. I mean, all the benefits, all the convenience elements that we now have in the virtual world are coming to the real world. And that's only the beginning. Uh, you can see how those two are merging. And at the end, there won't be any difference anymore, in my opinion. Yeah, and, and to add on to that, I think, I mean, we, we still classify it as a robot. I mean, that's that's maybe what I hated the most about Elon's presentation. It was like this humanoid robot, right? But I remember when I was a kid and we had our very first personal computer into the house, it was like a really big thing. And if you ask people now, how many computers do you have in the house? They have no idea. I mean, an iPad is a computer, a smartphone is a computer. You stopped counting at a certain moment in time. And I think the same thing is going to happen with robotics. If I ask you how many robots you have, you say, oh, well, we have two. We have one that you know, mops the floor and one that mows the lawn. We have two. I think in a couple of years, you won't be able to count anymore. But they're all not going to be humanoid robots running around in your house doing chores. I, I think that's a very old school sci-fi idea of a robot. But the fact that we're going to be assisted by technology in many ways is going to be a reality. Mm -hmm. You can see the complexity growing because now getting all your smartphones and your tablets and your computers synced with the Wi-Fi in your house is a big chore. Imagine what it's going to be to actually manage and control all those robots in your house in the future. That is going to be an absolute nightmare. So I can clearly see what my grandchildren are going to be complaining about to my kids in just a couple of years' time. You're going to need a robot to manage your robots, probably. <laughs> Pascal, uh, to talk about something else, what is going on in China? I mean, this summer, um, it almost felt like it was a technology crackdown organized from Beijing. Can you explain what is going on? Because many people have some questions about all the announcements about the relation between the big tech companies and Beijing. What, what's your perspective? What's happening? Yeah, we have the feeling, Pascal, that China wants to go back to the abacuses. I mean, just uh, <laughs> the old way of tabulating. Yeah, right? actually, talking about abacuses, when I visited China in 1990, the first time in the banks, they were still using them. 
just to double check if the calculator actually worked. <laughs> uh, and so they're very, very good at using abacuses. So I, I would be okay with that because I learned it at one point. But yes, uh, Stephen, there was an earthquake when it came to the crackdowns as the West talk, talked about it. And it's not that people are just interested. Actually, people lost a lot of money on the stock exchange mm -hmm. because of everything that happened in the regulation in China. And the whole year, it's not just been last month, but the last two months have been just like crazy. On It was almost every week there was another crackdown that was happening. But this started a long time ago with Ant Financial's IPO almost a year ago. That wasn't, didn't happen. Then Alibaba's anti-monopoly fine of 2.8 billion US dollars. And then last time we talked about the Bitcoin mining that was uh, not legal anymore. Then this summer, it was really about uh, a lot about data and about certain industries. We saw Didi, the Uber of China, that uh, suddenly uh, could not operate anymore because they removed, the Beijing had removed all their applications from the app stores uh, from China. And there's a lot of app stores in China. And so that was suddenly a big problem, not being able to get new customers, all because of privacy regulation and national security reasons. Tencent had some exclusive rights on music, and that was not allowed anymore so that Alibaba can now also get into the music industry and others. Then it was about games. The games were banned for kids. So kids of less than 18 years in China can only play three hours of games, and specifically on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday from eight to nine. So three <laughs> times one hour. So it's very clear when these kids can play games. And so this was another crackdown. And then the big one was the EdTech, the online tutoring companies that were not able to provide business anymore and, and make money anymore. So suddenly Chinese government, Beijing, had decided this industry is now going to become a non-profit. And so you can imagine the world, let's say that any company is being built and suddenly somebody says, well, from tomorrow on, you're going to become a non-profit. So that didn't really come over very well. So, of course, the stock exchange uh, reacted very, very firmly. The stocks went really down and everybody, just like you said, was linking this to Beijing and the Communist Party and the 100 years of celebration that happened. And so they wanted to show that they were in control and, and the state was actually going to replace the liberal or uh, the capitalistic model. It's a power play from Beijing. There's a lot of things that were talked about. They didn't talk about the abacus, but uh, they talked about a lot of these things. And so everybody thought like, well, nobody's safe in China. We shouldn't invest in Chinese stocks. And I believe that um, there's really a lot of confusion on what's happening. And there's actually four crackdowns. It's not just one big crackdown that Beijing is doing. And there's one for fintech, which happened with Ant Financial, uh, which is really bankers that want fintech companies to organize themselves like banks. They don't want fintechs to have a technology advantage simply because they're fintech. They want to have the same regulation as banks. Then later was the anti-monopoly laws, and that was really about the big tech that, just like anywhere in the world, Google, uh, Facebook, and so on, have to abide according to anti-monopoly laws. This was really lawyers looking into protecting customers, protecting markets, protecting prices that were discounted, and so on. So that was the second crackdown. And these all happened in parallel and by coincidence happened all in 2021. The third one was all about privacy laws. And this is an interesting one because there's three different laws. And we often say there's this cybersecurity law in China, which is really uh, much more strict and, and it's going to change everything. But the cybersecurity is really about keeping the servers and the data safe. Then there's a national security law, 
which is all about against hacking. And that's the same as the U.S. is, is going for. It's, it's very much about making sure the country is safe. And China is putting a lot more of national security laws in there than any other country because they're really worried about that. And then the third one is about privacy laws. And this will come out in 2021. The national security laws are on the 1st of September. The privacy laws is in 2022. And this will be as strict as GDPR. I just hope that the people in Beijing are smarter at implementing it. But the reality is it's, it's going to be as, as strict as GDPR in terms of laws. But one of the interesting things that I really think about this privacy and data laws in China is that China is looking at data much more as an asset than a risk. Although they're trying to protect it with the laws, they're seeing data really as something like oil or infrastructure, something that the country has. And they want to figure out how to categorize these data in different categories so that they say some data has to be very secure, other data can be open data, other data is like mixed data, or other data is only for this type of people, or for maybe only Chinese or whatever it is. And so they're looking at data as an asset because they want to make money from data. And we never talk about that when we talk about these laws and these regulations. And so this is one of the reasons that they now want these tech companies to follow these laws is because they're looking at how to organize all that data. And then the fourth one, the fourth crackdown was on the industry related. And this is the most interesting one because the most scary one, you could say, because China wants to build a healthy, modern, socialist society. What that means is that they want to make sure that whatever companies do, it's not harming society. And so typically, this is where this gaming problem comes from. The kids need to be protected. But also the poor need to be protected and they need to be have the opportunity to grow in social mobility. So, of course, ed tech companies, education technology companies were targeted because they created an environment which was very unhealthy for the kids in China, where they were actually uh, parents were spending one third of their salary on these online tutoring. Because of that, they couldn't or didn't want to have a second child. So lots of problems. But basically, it's all about these ed tech companies now have to abide according to certain laws so that they don't get certain people stressed out, the children to study, the parents to spend money, the teachers that rather do online tutoring than actually give lessons in, in their class, which means that the teachers, this was the interesting thing in China, it wasn't the students sleeping in class, it was the teachers sleeping in class because the teachers were working day and night outside the class hours. <laughs> so there's no ban on ed tech in itself. There's just a ban on the curriculum for uh, students to study to enter the university exams. And everything else they can do, like art or sports or coding is in there. They can do uh, lots of other things like vocational training, professional training, that's all allowed. So it's not that they're banning. But the interesting thing is because these four crackdowns came at the same time, everybody's feeling that Chinese government is now saying we're in control and we want to go back to the Maoist period and uh, capitalism is going to be more state than capitalism. And so everybody's like panicking. But there's a logic. I would say there's some methods in the madness. And some of these laws have come, have started like 10 years ago and others just last year. And they just all come together this year, which is, of course, scary for the stock exchange. Uh, do, you, do you think that all this will slow down innovation rates. I mean, we, we had a lot of things. Huh? And financial didn't go to the stock market. As you mentioned, Didi couldn't operate anymore. Jack Ma has been silenced. He disappeared for a few weeks. I mean, there have been so many stories this year. 
I can imagine that if you own a tech company now or if you want to start one or if you work at one that you are, maybe you're not going to say it as a Chinese citizen, but I can imagine you're really worried. Will this slow down the innovation rate? Is this an opportunity for the West to catch up or is that a wrong conclusion to make? It's an opportunity for the West to catch up for about, I guess, one year. After that, no more, in my view. And if you look at the Chinese response of people that look at what's happening, their response is really, and so the government says the same thing, is it's like this should fuel innovation. Because they're setting rules which we want to set in the West, but we're a little bit worried to set it. And so the question is, are investors going to put money in a company where a percentage of their revenue will have to go to CSR projects that are maybe decided by Beijing what the direction is rather than they decide it themselves. That's the direction it's going. So there's going to be a discount every time. And so if you calculate that discount, it doesn't matter. As long as the companies keep growing like crazy, you just calculate that in. And so you see that with Ant Financial, which really tumbled in terms of valuation, but then they got their house in order and they, they restructured and they're probably going to go IPO again at a lower valuation. But the potential of this company is still there. And now there's the regulation to actually make that they know what they're doing and they, they actually know how to grow safely and healthy. And I think that's the big difference. A lot of these booms that happened on the stock exchange often happened because of emotional decisions. Emotion. There's an Elon Musk that says we're going to build new robots, and then everybody starts buying robots, and and the, the stock exchange is go, the stock is going up. But is it real something that is sustainable? And so that is the discussion now in China with the West. Is like should we invest in sustainable companies? where the government is playing a role into what should be sustainable, or should we invest in companies that just want to make more money? And so this, this is an interesting debate. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about something else. And uh, thanks, Pascal, for that clear explanation. Peter, I know you've been following this whole story of the $600 million poly network heists, uh, where this hacker stole all this virtual money, and he basically said, I just did it for fun. What's the impact of this story? What's happening? Well, it's a, it's a really strange story. So um, uh, Poly Network is one of the players founded by a Chinese guy um, in DeFi, which is like the biggest thing. It's decentralized finance. If you remember, you know, we had cryptocurrencies, uh, but the whole idea behind cryptocurrencies is that you have decentralized networks, decentralized ledgers, uh, that are basically the safest way to actually keep track of stuff. And you can do that for all sorts of assets, be it currencies or you know, any type of asset that you can think of. And Poly Network was one of those players. And in the summer, they all of a sudden got hacked and $600 million in cryptocurrency was stolen. Not one cryptocurrency, there were about 12 different cryptocurrencies that they were working with that all of a sudden were gone. Now, just imagine, Stephen, that you are the CEO of Poly Network. You come into work in the morning and your IT manager says, we have a little bit of a problem. Somebody stole $600 million. I mean, that is just... And the biggest problem is, of course, you have to disclose this. You're working in decentralized finance. I mean, you have to tell the world that somebody stole $600 million. And then it became a really interesting game because who did that? And very, very quickly, um, there was the hacker who was responsible that we don't know his real name, but he's referred to as Mr. White Hat, 
who started putting messages out on the Ethereum blockchain. And the messages are cryptic to say the least. So, I mean, I don't know if you've seen the messages, but I mean, you can imagine the other side of the story. I mean, you're the hacker who spent probably months planning this. All of a sudden, overnight, you get access to $600 million. What are you going to do? So he started putting messages out on the Ethereum blockchain. And uh, some of the messages are hilarious. Uh, one of the messages is he says, I have been exploring the meaning of life for a while. Well, interesting, right? I mean, people started to say, what is this guy? Then he says, I'm not interested in money, so I might consider returning some tokens. I think that's the moment that, you know, Poly Network started paying attention. But then he got real Batman shit on this because then he posted on Ethereum, I prefer to work in the dark and save the world. Well, with $600 million, you can actually do quite a lot of stuff that is good in the world. I think the biggest problem is he couldn't actually do something with that money. I mean, if you rob a train or rob a bank and you have $600 million in cash, you can find ways to launder the money. But if you actually steal $600 million in crypto assets, laundering money is not so easy. And what happened is very quickly, some of the assets were frozen. So for example, he had about $30 million in Tether assets, and those were immediately frozen. So although he stole the money, I mean, there is an opportunity in cryptocurrency to block that, so he couldn't actually do something with that. So very quickly, you know, Poly Network and the hackers started a negotiation. And they did everything to please the guy. They said, oh, well, we thank you very much for discovering a security hole. And uh, wouldn't you consider a bounty? And they promised him half a million dollars in real money. And they said, wouldn't you like a job with us as our security advisor? And you know, in about a couple of days time, he returned almost half of the money. And then he actually returned the last part of the assets that he stole. So we still don't know who the person is. We don't know if it's a, you know, a guy, if it's a girl. We don't know if it's a team. We only know that it's Mr. White Hat. We know that he really likes Batman and that he probably was incapable of actually doing something with the money. So I find it an extremely fascinating uh, story. It shows that the whole world of decentralized finance and security is still very immature. There is still a lot of work to be done to make it more secure. And the biggest problem we now have is that the most interesting piece of computer science is everything dealing with decentralized finance, crypto and blockchain. And that means that every hacker in the world who wants to show the world that they are amazing is going to try and do something similar. So if you're a big player like Coinbase, you spend an insane amount of money on security. You have to hire the best and the brightest to actually keep it safe. We're still going to see a lot of you know, roadkill on the road to you know, a stable decentralized finance. But one thing is clear, this is absolutely the hottest area in computer science at the moment. It's a bit dark corporate stand-up comedy, in my opinion. I mean, it's, <laughs> uh, but I mean, it, it signals how large the challenge is in terms of uh, technology, digital literacy in companies. If we, if we look at Nextworks as well, what types of programs and questions that we are 
observing together with our groups and together with companies. I mean, this is way out there in terms of question. Like, I love the quote in one of the articles about this topic. Like, it said, so whenever a human being writes a code, there's a chance they will make a mistake. And if you look at China, I mean, they are kind of making sure that the collective goes into one direction. Uh, Others try to work together with their attacker, Mr. Whitehead. But I mean, at the end of the game, I think what it shows is that are we really still understanding the world we are building and we're trying things? But then on the other hand, you have the banks indeed blocking fintech because we don't want our system to be to be dead in a few years because then we are dead. So it's a whole um, yeah, it's a whole spectacle out there. I think in terms of systems and in it's terms of it's a spectacle. Banking. And as you pointed out, the fundamental question is going to be trust and who do you trust? I mean, security is one of the most complex challenges in IT. It has been for the longest time. It's going to become even more so in the future. If you're a bank, for example, you spend an enormous amount of money on security. And just hiring the best and the brightest is one of your big and top priorities. And that's going to be you know, for almost every company out there. We've seen some really big industrial companies that have been fallen because you know, they had lackluster security. But I think this is eventually you know, coming down to the not just literacy, but you know, capability to defend yourself. This is what the big banks are now dealing with. But imagine in the future, Julie, that this is going to be also a personal thing. I mean, we all probably have some virus protection on our PCs. Well, interesting, but you know, that is going to be peanuts compared to what we're going to need in the future. If, if you're going to have a future you know, where we all have uh, self-driving cars and humanoid robots doing our dishes and watching our kids, imagine that some Mr. White Hat would basically hack your car while you're on your way to work or on your way to the airport. And he wants 12 bitcoins in order to safely deposit you at the airport, or he's going to you know, do something harmful. Or they're going to hack into your Tesla humanoid spandex robot and say, you know, we want a ransom before we can release your kids. I mean, that is more than literacy. Mm -hmm. This is going to be absolutely one of the most core things that we have to think about in the future. I had a discussion a couple of weeks ago with a guy who leads the cybersecurity firm. And he talked about this, but then he started to say, okay, you have the individual risk, but then think about countries who play this game. Like he said, I'm convinced that in 10, 15 years from now, we're going to have a cyber world war where countries like Russia or China may have already installed some systems that once everything is connected, that they can just shut down entire countries so that we wake up one day and there's no electricity, there's no water, our cars aren't running anymore. And we have a complete shutdown of Belgium or the United States. And you can't access your military capabilities because they're totally cut off. I don't think you have to wait that long, Stephen. It's happening already. Look at the crackdown we had in Colonial Pipeline uh, just yeah, a few months sure. ago, which was you know, crippling the whole um, supply of oil into the U.S. Yeah. And, and he said, if, if that happens, imagine that you shut down an entire country. It can take three to four weeks before they can reinstall it. So in the meantime, you have free play of doing whatever you want. So it's, it's extremely scary stuff. Huh? It's completely different than what we've experienced in terms of safety in the last one million years. It's a, it's a completely new ballgame. Yeah, but uh, I think this, uh, Stephen, this also brings me back to this uh, national security law in China, which I was talking about. And, and I think the big difference, in my view, is that China, and that's what we saw with Didi, is now telling companies how to make sure their security is okay. And, and so we are leaving that decisions to the corporations. 
China is actually making that decisions for the country. Mm -hmm. And so I wouldn't be surprised that in the next years we're going to see that China is ahead of the world in protecting just their own assets uh, because they've put in regulation and rules and what you need to do, and they're checking on every company. I remember in, in Belgium, Picanol at one time was hacked, mm -hmm. but there's nobody from the Belgian government that went to Picanol to check beforehand if their system was safe enough. And I think that's what's happening in China, and it will set uh, a standard or a trend at least globally yeah. because everybody's going to have to do it. Somebody needs to control and double-check those people that think they are safe, but actually might not be safe. Yeah, and it's a difference in culture. I think the West is more vulnerable here. I, I once had the opportunity to spend a few days with Frank Abagnale. He's today still the head of cybersecurity at the FBI in the United States, and he's famous because he's the main character from the movie Catch Me If You Can, and his role was played by uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. And uh, he, he's like this imposter. Huh? He's imposing as a pilot and as a doctor, and he's making millions and millions, and then the FBI catches him. He was only 18 back then. And then five years later, they went to him and said, do you want to work for us? So this guy is still alive. And I had the opportunity to talk with him, and I asked him, I have the feeling that Russia and China are much better in hacking than the United States. And he says, no, no, we're as good in hacking. The only problem is security. He says, in the West, our personal freedom is so high that we're very, very vulnerable. And he told me what he did. He goes to all these Fortune 500 companies to convince them to invest more in cybersecurity. And he told me he talks his way into the employee parking. He says, with my skills, that's no problem at all. So I go into the employee parking and then I drop like 50 USB sticks and it has printed the word confidential on it. And I leave it everywhere. And then he has a meeting with the CEO and the CIO, and they're like, oh, Mr. Abagnale, nothing to worry about. Oh, we invest millions in security, and this is what we do. And they give him a state-of-the-art PowerPoint. And at the end of the meeting, he always checks his computer. And he told me, as soon as someone just plugs in that USB in their computer to see what's on that file, I instantly have access to everything of that company. And it was a 100% hit rate. Every time he let those guys present and then he said, Mr. Abagnale, any further questions? He opened his laptop and he said, while you were presenting, I just hacked into your company. And that is something that would probably happen less in countries like Russia and China. But we are like, hey, confidential, I want to find out what's on it. And now we're being hit. So the difference in culture, I think, is going to be a very interesting one in terms of security for cyber attacks. Yeah, I also believe that building on top of that, it's what Peter says, it's really about trust. And so the big difference is that you need an entity to control other entities to make sure that they are actually safe. Mm -hmm. And so in China, they have the big advantage that the government, the Communist Party, is the entity that is actually controlling all the others. And so to control all these entities, you can always put another entity on top of one entity. And in the end, you have like 30 entities all controlling the one below the other. Yeah. And so this is just not workable. So at the end, you either have someone on top that everybody says, okay, this is the entity we trust, like we have with banking, for example, or you have a lot of entities horizontally that are in competition with each other that try to figure out if everybody's trustable and try to actually make a, take advantage of the fact that somebody else is maybe not trustworthy. Yeah. And so this is very interesting, whether it's a horizontal or more a vertical model. And, and the West is clearly more a vertical model where we trust in our institutions to actually be competitive and make sure that everything stays okay. And so this is going to be uh, another 
different model between the West and many countries, like you say, Russia, China, and so on. Now we're talking about this, Pascal. I, I just want to jump to this topic where the US and more in particular IBM and Japan are now working together on quantum computing to counter China's master plan. Is that related to this whole discussion? Um, yes, uh, because it's all about security. And so this is security in the way that we're talking about quantum computers. And so quantum computing is really the next big leap in, in technology, meaning Everybody's agreeing that if we can ever get this to work somehow, it's going to be such a different paradigm that uh, countries who are more advanced than others are just going to, on every aspect, and specifically on the military aspect, are going to be way ahead of the rest of the world. Now, this is all science fiction still, and right now quantum computers are still doing very, very little, uh, but uh, there's a race going on. And so IBM, who's launched uh, together with Google, uh, many years ago, two years ago, they actually had their first quantum computer being effective or working properly, is working with Tokyo University. And I think that fact is very interesting because Tokyo University uh, or Tokyo, uh, Japan in general, is being seen always as a huge competitor technology-wise for the U.S. in the 80s and the 90s. And so scientific research between the U.S. and Japan has always been on friction and there's always been challenges to make these two work together. But somehow, two years ago, they really decided we have to work together. And the only reason is actually China. China is the big enemy. And so China has been investing huge in quantum. And so two years ago, IBM and Tokyo University made a corporation agreement to really work together to help train HR, so people, talent on quantum, but also do quantum sensing, networking, quantum computing, everything possible. And just this month, they announced that they actually have this first machine up and running. And in 2021, actually with Biden, the Quantum Initiative or Innovation Initiative Consortium was really a consortium between Japan and China. That was when the prime minister visited Biden, he was really talking about quantum as being a national priority. And it's interesting when you look at the words that they were using. They were using words like, we need to cooperate with countries on good faith, on shared values, on like-minded nations. This was about people that value freedom and democracy. And so you're seeing this clear shift that people that they didn't like to work before with too much, which is Japan and even South Korea, because they see them as competitors in the U.S., are now starting to become the trusted partners of the U.S. to build the next generation. In 5G, we had the same with Ericsson. And, and so they're looking at ways to cooperate the U.S., with people that they didn't always like to cooperate with in the past because they see a new big enemy. And that shows that quantum is so important. And so if you look at China, Eric Smith, the ex-CEO of uh, Google, and he's now on the National Security Commission in the US, he says that China is really what he calls a rivalry partnership. And that's very interesting, that world, rivalry partnership, because it's not about competition, it's about when we have something that we can work together with China that isn't harming our strategic national security, going back to your question on security, then it's fine. If it's about environment, yeah, let's work with China. Maybe on healthcare and building new vaccines, we could consider it maybe after the pandemic is over, but they're thinking about working together on things that are not strategic from a security point of view. Everything else is out of the picture. That's not possible. And so it's really very clear that Eric Schmidt said, AI and quantum, China is picking up speed so fast that if we don't invest 
billions now, we're going to be too late. And China had invested a couple of years ago, 10 billion US dollars in building the biggest quantum computer in Hefei. It's about 200 kilometers from Shanghai. And they've built this computer. And in the meantime, they came out with two results which have shocked the world of quantum. One was end of last year, where they really showed that uh, their fastest quantum computer was like a trillion times faster than a supercomputer. They were using light and, and photons. So it was quite specific, something that had actually zero use, but was very, very interesting for those people that were interested in that topic. But doing that broadly is a very different environment. Now, what we're seeing is that in July, they actually had another achievement, which was to improve what Google did two years ago by 100 times. And so it's just by using more qubits that they actually could, uh, because this is all exponential, they could actually achieve much higher rates. And so what normally a supercomputer would do years to develop, they do it in, in a matter of so many seconds or minutes. And so it, it starts to show that there's the first results. But this is like 66 qubits, or I mean, this is nothing. I mean, they need to go to millions of qubits before it can be useful in real environment. But somehow 2030 is the target for both Japan and China and the US to somehow get to that target. And so the race for quantum is very clear. But what's interesting in this aspect is the fact that the US, IBM, is working with Japan. They're considering working with South Korea. They're working with all these partners to contain somehow the development of China because they're really concerned if China leads in one of these real disruptive innovations, which will be quantum, that they won't be able to catch up. And AI has been a big talk about, but quantum is, is another leap. And just to add on to that, I think I love the statement about quantum computing is that quantum computing is the future and it will always be that way. Because we've been talking about quantum computing for a really long time. And you know, it's really difficult to really see the progress in very practical applications. By the way, Europe is quite good in quantum computing as well. So QTech in Delft, for example, is one of the leading institutions in that. But I think what is really interesting is, as Pascal pointed out, this is one of those technologies that if somebody makes a breakthrough, it's a game changer. I mean, if, for example, China would be able to develop a quantum computer, it would basically make every type of encryption that we have in, say, finance completely useless overnight. I think it's that FUD factor. It's that fear, uncertainty, and doubt that is playing out, whether this is AI or quantum or even things like in gene therapy. I mean, there are a number of those technologies out there that if somebody has a breakthrough, it's a game changer. And if they have it and you don't have it, it's a problem. And I think this is part of that geopolitical game that is being played and where technology is actually the fuel of these types of interchanges. Yeah, I totally agree that uh, this is very much a game changer. But what I really think is interesting is the fact that now collaboration is starting to really get sparked uh, from all over the country to make this happen. Everybody understands that they can't get this done on their own. And so this is where the question of China is there. They're on their own right now on quantum. And so will they be able to keep leading if they're on their own? So it's a big uh, if question. But it's very interesting to see this collaboration now happening, which normally we wouldn't see happening. 
I kind of see why Peter gave my newborn kid a book from Stanford, Introduction to Quantum Physics. Now I totally get that, <laughs> Peter. So thank you so much. I, I hope he my will pleasure. figure it out one day. <laughs> well, let's go to a more light topic. Uh, Julie, Facebook is launching a new Horizons app, uh, making sure that they can have virtual meetings in VR. You've been following this. Can you Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, it's again uh, ironic uh, in the whole back to the office saga, I would say. People are scared to go back to the office. If, if I listen to this discussion, I think they might be running back to physical offices anytime soon too, uh, instead of being in a virtual world. But hey, the virtual office room battle is definitely still also on, I would say. Uh, Facebook indeed launched Horizon Workrooms. Mark Zuckerberg called it uh, a step towards the embodied internet. I think that's the discussion we had earlier today. Like, are we moving more real elements into a virtual world and going into a mixed reality, being in virtual spaces that feel more human and feel more real? And what does that do to our interactions? Or will it be the other way around? Or will it just come together. I mean, all that discussion aside, it is moving. And what they launched was, again, not state-of-the-art yet. The avatars they used didn't wear spandex suits, but you can at least <laughs> choose which color of t-shirt you have, and you can use your hands, not controllers. I think that was one of the big shifts in this app, uh, the fact that you're not with those weird things in your hand, but actually can do something with your hands in the room. That feels pretty natural, I guess. I think another big evolution was that if you're with those controllers in your hand, you cannot really take notes or something. Or if you want to check something in your agenda, I mean, that doesn't really work when you're with goggles and <laughs> controllers everywhere and sensors wherever you want. So I think they're they're really evolving in making this more real. And again, the discussion is not like, will this work? And is this going to be the place where we work? But it's really a question of what new world are they building? What new operating system is emerging um, than compared to the one we know today? And I think relating back to the big discussion earlier on trust and security, it will have to be an operating system that people trust. But Stephen, I think if we look at your customer centricity uh, observations of the last decades, people still go for convenience as well. So that combination of convenience and trust that's an interesting evolution to observe. And I think it's fascinating to see what Facebook is doing there. Yeah, and I think it's a natural evolution of virtual meetings. Um, we all have a rich experience now with two-dimensional virtual meetings. And we know the benefits, but we also know the downsides. I think like body language is completely different on a screen. Staying focused two-dimensionally is completely different. And you still have the feeling that you're not really with that person. The future of virtual meetings is going to be 3D. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Today, it feels still a little bit like a gimmick to me, what Facebook launched. Uh, it's, it's like a game and it's, it's cool, but I can't imagine being a full day in their Horizons app. I think you would go completely nuts. But imagine five, ten years from now when that really works well and when you have the quality like we have now with Zoom meetings, if you have that in 3D, that could completely change the way that we operate and meet all again. And one day, sooner or later, that's going to be the reality that we're going to be working in. Yeah, fully agree. But it's going to be the form factor that is really important. Yeah. I mean, 
I think at this moment, almost all of the VR equipment is still too big, too heavy, too clunky, too elaborate. I mean, it's it's not for long-term use. No. And I think if we can solve that, and, and we probably can at a certain point in time, it's going to be a game changer. Yeah. But I think the technology in terms of the rendering, so the software part is pretty much done. But it's the hardware that is lagging. And I think the company that has a breakthrough, and look at Apple. We've been looking at a company like Apple for a really long time to have a breakthrough in that direction. If they do that, that could be a really big thing for a company like Apple. And I think at that moment, once we solve that form factor, I think we can probably see an enormous evolution mm-hmm. in this field. Yeah. Hopefully, by the time that we have the next pandemic, they will be ready with that. <laughs> uh, Peter, um, you are our Walmart watcher. And a couple of weeks ago, the New York Times came out with an interesting piece of research, an article, where it was really clear that for the first time, Amazon was bigger than Walmart. People were spending more money at Amazon than at Walmart. So this is completely new. They overtake this number one position. What's the impact of that evolution, according to you? Well, it was quite difficult, actually, for the researchers to put together all the data because both Walmart and Amazon are such monsters in terms of complexity and size, and and they have tentacles everywhere. So it was a pretty big spreadsheet, probably, to put it all together. But it's been long predicted, of course, that Amazon would overtake Walmart, Walmart being the biggest uh, physical retailer in the world. And um, according to the Wall Street Journal, it happened uh, this summer because they said that if you look, you know, summer 2020 to summer 2021, they saw that uh, Walmart had about $566 billion in sales and Amazon $610 billion in sales. So finally, we saw that Amazon became bigger than, than Walmart. I think what it means, in my opinion, is that we, we saw it coming for a long time, but it's finally here. And for a long time, what you had is that Amazon had positioned itself as the challenger, but it's no longer the challenger. I mean, actually, it was, oh, we're you know the cool online guys fighting against the old retailers of the past, and they're the big guys, and we're the really, really cool young guys. But that's no longer the case. I mean, Amazon is now the biggest. Amazon is now the one that is setting the pace. And you know, actually, Walmart is second. It's reversed the roles. And one of the things that it might introduce is maybe that the regulators, again, are going to take a closer look at that. Because for a long time, the online retailers had the benefit of they were fast, they were new, they were nimble, they were challengers, they were trying things that might have been a little bit outside of the normal you know, coloring lines. I think now this might mean that there's going to be even more scrutiny. So what Pascal was talking about is what is happening in China. It wouldn't be surprising that we're going to see very similar type of activities that are going to happen in the U.S. as well, where the U.S. regulators are going to look even more closely. Because, you know, Amazon can't hide anymore behind the fact that, oh, we have to fight the big one. No, they are the big one at this moment. And I think that is a a pivotal moment. We saw it coming for a long time. It's finally here. And I think the biggest implication in my opinion, is probably going to be a heightened regulatory focus on this sector. Mm-hmm. I think it's also an opportunity for Walmart. As you said, I mean, they're no longer the, the king. Um, 
and they're no longer the bad guy. They're like going into that challenging direction. Everybody has yep. observed their investments in technology and, and in catching up on e-commerce. But at the same time, they have to make sure that they remain relevant and essential in the, in the brick and mortar world as well. So they have to win those two battles. But at the same time, people kind of have empathy for what they're doing. And they're also working on their image, I would say. They're working on how to make sure that we are responsible for the almost 2 billion people that work for us. Uh, they're uh, all in two, about... 2 it. million. Yeah. 2 million. <laughs> two million, sorry. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that would be... Only in China we talk about billions. <laughs> uh, yeah, you just influenced me that much, Pascal. I mean, no, but I mean, the challenge that they are taking on uh, right there is not easy, but they are really investing at Walmart in those community, societal, environmental issues. I think Walmart has a huge opportunity to make the difference there. And then the question is not only will regulators... What will they do in terms of economic comparison, but also what will customers and what will society do in terms of business model? Like how sustainable is it to have all those packages in your door after one day? And do people want to work for one company or another? I'm not saying that, that Walmart has nailed down the sustainability matrix, but it's going to become a big question for Amazon as well, I think. So I think the next battle between those two companies is not online or offline, uh, but we'll have to do a lot more with those types of topics. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the, the PR that Amazon is getting is not always positive. And it's a very strange company yeah? because I saw a study two weeks ago in the UK that Amazon is still the number one company in terms of customer experience. People are extremely happy with the delivery quality of Amazon. But at the same time, everyone knows that they have issues with the people working in their warehouses. They have issues with sustainability. So it's a very complex company in terms of overall perception. And I agree with you, Julie. I think this is one of the items that they will, or, or maybe the item that they will have to work on the next couple of years to make sure that they solve that paradox in perception, which will be extremely, extremely difficult for them to do. Okay, let's go to our last topic, NFTs again. We've been talking about NFTs quite a lot in uh, Radar. And just before summer, we were talking about V-Friends. I don't know if you guys remember that. That was the Gary V initiative in terms of NFTs, where he created these yeah, drawings, basically, that he made. And you could buy them. And when you buy one of those NFTs, you unlock certain benefits. Uh, we were debating whether we should get, the, get Gary in your podcast NFT, but it was too expensive for us. But I've been looking on their site and it's crazy to see how the value of those NFTs increased. On average, it's now sold for about nine to 10 eaters just to have access to the VFriends conference every year. So if you know that an eater is about, what is it now, 2,700 US dollars. So if it's sold for 10, it means that to get access to that conference for three years, people are now paying 27,000 US dollars. And prices are going up rapidly. And for some more scarce items, some of the prices are now going up up to more than 250,000 US dollars. So it's crazy. And we could say, ah, oh, but this is that crazy Gary V community that is just crazy about Gary and everything that he does. And now they're paying so much money for all of that. But if you look at the evolution of NFTs in the corporate world, there's been quite a few interesting cases in the last couple of weeks. So you're starting to see how certain big brands are starting to experiment with NFTs as well, especially brands that have a very engaged brand community are starting to yeah, sell virtual assets 
create assets that unlock benefits. So they're almost creating this over-the-top loyalty program in NFTs. And the difference here is if you buy something, it can actually have a different value in the future. It can become more expensive. It can become less expensive. But it's still at a very big hype at this moment. The the most crazy thing was for Coca-Cola. So Coca-Cola launched this virtual jacket that you could buy, a virtual asset. A Coca-Cola fan actually spent $575,000 to buy that Coke jacket that only exists in the virtual world. To give you an idea, imagine that you would have a fully loaded Coca-Cola truck and that imagine it can hold 14,000 bottles on that truck. And if one bottle is worth $1, that means that that guy actually bought 41 fully loaded Coca-Cola trucks worth of bottles. And instead, he got a virtual red jacket and it looks cool, (laughs) but still it's a virtual gadget. And more and more brands are starting to play with this. And Coca-Cola launched this exclusive item. But some companies are starting to organize games with NFTs, like Stella Artois has sold virtual horses to their customers, and then they could participate in a race and have access to new benefits related to the brand. You have Mattel, the toy company, they own Hot Wheels. They created an exclusive set of Hot Wheel cars that they sell online to their diehard fans. And like they have created this this really cool green car. It's called Hot Wheels Twin Mill. Uh, They have a whole story that they created about this virtual car. And it was sold last week for four eaters. I don't know any real toy car that gets sold for 12,000 US dollars. But this is what's happening now in the world. And of course, a lot of these people who are investing in NFTs are hoping that they're buying them early stage and that eventually it will be worth much more. Probably in 90% of the cases, that will be an awful investment. But what really fascinates me is the overall trend. I'm not interested in the hype. I'm interested in the fact, how could companies with high brand engagement and that have strong communities of customers, how could they use NFTs and virtual assets to create more bonding with that community of fans? How could they boost word of mouth? How could they boost engagement and create engagements in completely different ways thanks to these virtual assets? And I'm convinced in the next couple of years, we're going to see that all those brands that have these high fan communities, these really engaged fan communities, are going to set up some way of virtual engagement with their own crypto, with their own coins, or with NFTs. And today we're in the hype, but it's still already very interesting to look at all these evolutions, especially if you look at the kind of brands that are setting up all these initiatives. It's really cool to monitor. But Stephen, just to tap into that, I agree with you. I think there's a potential for fan engagement, Mm -hmm. but I'm not sure if it's always going to be an investment type of deal, because if you look at the Coca-Cola jacket, it was an auction for charity, really. So I think it's probably a way for somebody to give back or to actually show that he's willing to do something really, really positive for society. I don't think that guy bought it because he thinks that jacket's going to be worth $50 million at one point in time. So I think engagement probably is more important than the monetary aspect of it. I agree. I think the, the, the smart contract element of it, where you 
if you buy an NFT or if you buy a virtual asset that it grants you certain rights that other customers don't have, that's going to be an interesting one. It's, it's like with Kings of Leon that brought a new album to the market. You could buy specific NFTs that always give you front row seats access if you want to go to one of their concerts. That is worth a lot of money for fans and they don't do it for the investment, but they do it for the unique benefit that is linked to the virtual asset that they bought. And I think that's where the engagement part mm -hmm. really has the biggest potential. I fully agree. Uh, today we're in the investment mode, but the engagement part, creating benefits, unique benefits, that's where the opportunity is in terms of customer experience. Fully agree. And it's something that, uh, Stephen, in, in China, we've been seeing for over a decade uh, with virtual gifts, mm -hmm. where people were actually creating these gifts, making money from these gifts, But the main reason that these gifts were used online was just to show to anybody that was live streaming or that was on the other side that they wanted to engage and they wanted to give something. And today, this, this is a crazy business in China, but it's really about showing that you have your moment of fame because of that. Yeah. And that is really that 10 seconds that you have and that important person that you want to talk to or they give you time. And so this is really uh, something that I see happening in China for a long time. But NFTs are also picking up in China now. I mean, there's this whole thing about crypto, which isn't allowed in China. And so this is a new form of seeing like, maybe we can do something with that. Alibaba has just launched an NFT market in China, and they're going full speed in, into uh, like this digital copyright and asset trade, as they call it, to help people monetize also or create more. And so the thing that I, I think will be interesting to see now, because the news that I see from the West is very often about exclusivity. Mm -hmm. In China, I see this going maybe even into more inclusivity, which means that the creators of these digital assets are now able through these NFTs and through this model to start making money, uh, which before they were not visible. Mm -hmm. And so you'll see a lot of employees who could now go into the gaming world and participate in a new world that otherwise they would have to work for $2 a day. And now suddenly they can make a lot of money because they are creating something on themselves. Yeah. So I do believe that in specifically in Asia, we're going to see a lot of change using NFTs actually to do good for society. And just like Peter said with charity, but this is still top down. While I think the bottom up is going to be more interesting to see how do we get these poor people out of poverty by using this new model. And that's why I believe maybe China will not be against that, but it will be regulated in some way, but it, they won't be against it because it could help the population that need that. Yeah, you know, there, there's still a lot of people who doubt if people would be willing to buy virtual assets. But if you look at the gaming industry, as you mentioned, Pascal, I mean, the billions and billions of money that went into buying more expensive uh, skins and guns in Fortnite and other virtual worlds, it's just insane. So it's, it's going to be the most normal thing in the world. And brands that look into a way how they can use that to increase their loyalty, I think that's a, a huge opportunity. I get very excited about that. My friends, I think we're at the end of the podcast. So thank you a lot. And we will be back next month with a new episode of Radar. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Radar by Nextworks. If you enjoyed the show, please tell your friends and colleagues about it. And don't forget to give us a review score, which really helps to boost this podcast. We'll be back with a new episode of Radar next month. Meanwhile, to stay in touch, please follow our podcast 
and go to our website nextworks.com to subscribe to our newsletter. Take care.